back to our series on uh, the book of Ruth. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We, it's where we will begin uh, part 3 this evening. You know, one of the things we're taught as an, at an early age in life is uh, things change. We're told, uh, especially around here, if you don't like the weather, uh, wait around and it will change. We may change our hairstyle. We may change the paint on the walls or the paint that our homes are painted. Or we may change jobs. We may even change the vehicle we drive in and so on and so forth. But life is filled with changes. That's one thing we can say for certain. And especially in our society and our culture, it, we never seem to be able to keep up with the change, the constant change. Here's an example. Imagine if you would, from uh, nowadays, seeing this advertisement. I hope you can read it. These uh, were not too long ago. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Uh, I don't know if you can read the second one. Just one question, Mom. Can you afford not to smoke Marlboro? And my personal favorite, Michael, smoke a fresh cigarette. Give your throat a vacation. Could you imagine seeing these advertisements nowadays? Of course not. You wouldn't find these on TV or print advertising or anything like that. We're always in a constant state of change. But that fact was not true for Ruth and Naomi. Their lives had changed, had changed for the worst, yet they lacked the ability to affect any change in their own situation. They had neither the power nor the resources to do so. It seemed to them that their lot in life was fixed and they were powerless to do anything about it. But neither realized the change that the Almighty God had in store for them. So how did we get here to this uh, second chapter of Ruth? Well, chapter 1 ends with the author... Probably can't you read that. Yeah, you can. The author indicating that Ruth and Naomi had returned to Bethlehem. And they had returned during the barley harvest. And that seemed like an insignificant fact. Yet it was a very important fact. The season of harvest was a time of celebration and a time of rejoicing. It's a time for remembering the poor. And the narrative of this story is tied to that pattern. The women return home in the barley harvest, a time of God's favor, and a time that he would eventually usher in the beginning of this fruitful redemption for Naomi and for Ruth. But Naomi certainly is not there yet. And the author is very skillful in introducing this fact because the barley harvest was the occasion for all the dramatic developments that would occur and all the things that would come afterwards. Chapter 2 opens with an additional bit of background information, but that's information that's necessary so you can uh, understand the full impact of the story. Last week we learned that Naomi had an in-law, many thought to be a nephew. And that nephew was a man of considerable means and reputation, a man of standing, or a mighty man, man of wealth. It was a man that the Hebrew translated as a mighty man of valor, the same 
word used in Judges 11 verse 1 to refer to Jephthah, the judge. The meaning assigned to this man named Boaz means in him is strength or strength or fleetness. And if you read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7, as we mentioned last week, his name is assigned to the north or the left pillar in the temple that Solomon built. And uh, if you read about that in 1 Kings chapter 7. In other words, his name, his uh, translated name is complete contrast to Naomi. He called herself bitter. He was a man of strong and noble characters. And these virtues will come to fruition and and will be uh, exhibited here in this chapter. And finally, this last main character is introduced, Boaz. And the major theme from his standpoint is he is a close relative. He's a redeemer. He has certain responsibilities to the family. He has certain responsibilities to the property of a relative who has died. And the author who already knows ahead of time the story, gives us only a hint that Boaz is a relative in verse 1. But only after his kindness and only after he takes care of Naomi and Ruth do we understand, do we realize, and does Naomi finally reveal that he is a close relative? And that close relation is the key to the rest of the entire story. And even then, no claims of his are made. There's no appeal to custom. Events must wait and take their time. They must play out. And while Naomi directs and while Ruth quietly serves and Boaz finishes his harvest, God's already provided an answer through, through his divine intervention and through his divine power and also an answer through the law in Leviticus. We saw last week the Old Testament provided for the very poor. During the harvest period, a farmer was prohibited from reaping his field to the very edges of the field. He was prohibited from gathering any leftover sheaves. Those were to be left for the needy and for the poor. And Ruth, as the younger of the two, nobly volunteers to go out into the fields and collect or glean what she's able to uh, collect. And in uh, chapter 2, we're told, as it just so happened, or as the NIV states, as it turned out, just so happens Ruth worked in the field of Boaz that day. In, uh, I believe that's in uh, verse 3 of chapter 2 makes it clear in this phrase that Ruth was unaware of the significance of this chance encounter in her mind about to be described. At the same time, the author of Ruth is driving home the point that God was at work behind these events. They may seem insignificant, they may seem uh, unrelated to us, but they're not. Ruth's initiative on the surface is simply to keep her and Naomi alive. She's um, carrying out her uh, daughter-in-law function as she sees it, 
And according to custom, which has been codified in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, she's carrying out her duty to go glean in the fields. As poor people, Ruth and Naomi would receive some help, but more was about to come their way. A hint of this and a hint of God's provision is given in Ruth's request. She stated that she might glean, quote, after him in whose sight I find favor. Now, we won't read chapters 2 and 3 in their entirety tonight, but we'll summarize some of the key points. So in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Ruth and Boaz finally meet. They're coming after me, I guess. When Boaz comes from the city to inspect his laborers and expect the work that's ongoing, he notices a very industrious young woman gleaning in his field. And upon inquiry, he realizes and he's told that this is the Moabitess that recently returned with Naomi from Moab. And the author reminds us in this chapter of Ruth's nationality six times, or in the, the, the book six times, so it's obviously integral to this message. And Boaz addresses Ruth directly in verse 8. And he takes action and he takes the initiative to provide for her safety and her well-being during the workday. And it's quite possible that in his form of address to her, he, he addresses her as my daughter. This may reflect a disparity in their ages. And he encourages her to remain close to the young women who are who are uh, gleaning in the field or reaping in the field in verse 9. That would seem to provide a more favorable position for her than any of the other gleaners. It would ensure her success. It would ensure that she would be able to glean enough to take home to Naomi to sustain them. And upon her expression of gratitude and her bewilderment that Boaz would show such kindness... Boaz explains it that in verse, uh, uh, beginning in verse 10, he explains it that he was aware of her personal sorrow and misfortune. And he concludes with a, very, a brief prayerful thought that God would honor her faithfulness and her sacrifice. But little did Boaz know that he, he would be God's instrument in answering this prayer. Ruth she responds, and she's deeply in deep humility, and she's deeply uh, gratified. She acknowledges how much his kindness, she acknowledges how much uh, his kindness has comforted her. In verse 13, her words, uh, speaking kindly to, or literally means spoken to the heart of, that portrays a beautiful picture of kindness here that the English translators seem to have lost. His actions must have meant a great deal to her, and they represent the first, if you think about it, it's the first cheerful thing that's happened to Ruth since she had lost her husband in, the, in Moab. After being widowed and leaving her home country and living in poverty, her encounter with Boaz was the turning point in her life. But Boaz's Kindness did not stop there. 
At mealtime, he gave her special attention and he gave her additional food. He took care of her. After lunch, he made provisions for Ruth to be uh, to have more of the leftover sheaves, or more than the leftover sheaves. The harvesters were ordered to leave behind stalks for her, intentionally leaving them for her together. And the result of her day's work, the Bible tells us, was an aphah. In verse 17, an aphah of barley, which was roughly equivalent to a bushel, or about 35 liters if you're into that metric stuff. But still an impressive amount for a gleaner. So then Naomi relates these events, or uh, Ruth relates these events to Naomi. And upon seeing Ruth's uh, gleaning, her aphah of barley, and the leftovers from lunch that she took home to Naomi, Naomi was anxious to know who was the human source of these unexpected blessings. In uh, verse 20, we begin to see the rest of the story. She understood that her close relative, Boaz, was responsible. And when she found this out, she broke out in praise to God. She broke out in praise because he was consistently the great moving force behind all these events. He, God, was the moving force behind this entire story. And Boaz is identified as a, I think the NIV calls him the guardian, some versions are kinsman, kinsman redeemer. This is the designation used for a kinsman who was responsible for, among other things, for ensuring family property. In Israelite society, real property belonged ultimately to God. It was not possible to legally purchase another family's land. In hard times, you could sell the land temporarily, almost like a lease, but you couldn't sell it. That was prohibited. It was the responsibility, if you did lease it out or you did uh, sell it for a short period, it was a responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to redeem the property and restore it to the original family that owned it. The law of Moses allowed a woman to ask for this redemption as well. And the concept of redemption in various forms is the backbone for the book of Ruth. An example of this principle, if if you remember, is in 1 Kings chapter 21, where King Ahab approached Naboth and wanted to purchase his vineyard. Well, Naboth declined based on this uh, prohibition of selling his property, he refused to sell it. Well, unfortunately for him, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, mainly his wife, uh, devised a scheme to murder Naboth and seize his property, which they did. But his unwillingness to sell dated back to the prohibition of selling property But if you did on a short term, it had to be redeemed, and you had someone who was the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. This responsibility naturally merged with the institution of heirship marriage, if you will. The redeemer married a dead brother's widow if she was childless. 
If you go back to chapter 1, uh, verse 11, I believe it was, Naomi was probably referring to this Old Testament practice when, where the uh, brother of a deceased child or childless and deceased and childless man marries the widow in order to raise up an heir for the deceased. That comes from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and if one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of his dead brother so that the name will not be blotted out from Israel. The Sadducees in the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke tried to trick Jesus with this very uh, law. Um, trying, you remember uh, the, the question about, you know, if you have someone who dies and they marry again and they, without children, then they die and marry again, marry again. Seven times, you know, whose wife will it be in the resurrection? They were, they were referring to this practice here and they're trying to trick him with it, but that was the practice the kinsman redeemer would oftentimes redeem the property and would also sometimes merged with marrying a childless widow. In this case, there were no more brothers. There were no more prospects for additional brothers. Naomi originally insisted that the two young women who had married her sons remain in their homeland. And even in, uh, if you look ahead to chapter 4, those events imply that it was customary for the kinsman redeemer, in addition to redeeming property, to marry the widow to fulfill these heirship requirements. That was to ensure the family tree. Naomi's comment that God, or Yahweh, in verse 20, had not stopped showing kindness to the dead may also indicate that she had already hoped that Boaz would fulfill the duties of the kinsman redeemer and preserve the line of Elimelech and Malon. What a good day this had been. What a glorious day this had been for Ruth and Naomi. Finally, they'd received some good news. Finally, there had, some cheer had been brought into their lives. The gleaning had been successful. Not only successful, it had gone way beyond that. The invitation had been extended to Ruth to continue gleaning throughout the barley and the wheat harvest, to stay in Boaz's field, to be in a prominent position, to be protected. And they finally were getting some good news. She was to remain gleaning in his field through the wheat harvest, which probably stretched until about June 1st. And even beyond that, Boaz's interest in Ruth probably opened up some possibilities in Naomi's mind that she was quick to recognize that the solution to all these problems would be the marriage of Ruth to the kinsman, Redeemer, especially and hopefully to Boaz. And although Ruth continued to work in the fields of Boaz during the harvest, the author is careful to point out that she continued to live with Naomi. This serves as a reminder of her absolute and undivided loyalty to her mother-in-law. Some modern scholars or modern readers 
uh, are skeptical about Ruth's sincerity, and they suspect she had ulterior motives, but the text gives no indication of this. The only indication we get is of her dedication, her devotion to her mother-in-law, Naomi. In fact, normally in the Hebrew uh, narratives, they don't employ characters with hidden agendas. They're, ex- they're explained clearly to the reader. There's no unexposed ideas or agendas. Uh, they're fully known. So every indication is that the author is describing ordinary people moving in and out of these complexities, these difficulties, and they're living their lives in very exemplary fashions. So Boaz, the local farmer, Naomi, the bereaved mother and mother-in-law, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, return from Moab, but they all behave in a manner worthy of emulation. Their behavior, the way they conduct themselves, is very important to properly understand chapter 3. Chapter 3, Ruth and Boaz. This is a very odd courtship. In fact, Ruth really proposes marriage to Boaz. So after the seven weeks of barley and wheat harvests, Naomi decides to take the initiative. She has Ruth's best interests in mind. And after her, after Naomi's old age and death, you can see her thinking about this, Ruth's life as an unprotected, widowed foreigner would be difficult. But marriage could alter that situation. She expresses her desire for Ruth to have a home. The season of the harvest was ending. Boaz would be spending the night on the threshing floor away from the crowded city. This seemed to be the appropriate time for Ruth to make her request for marriage. Now, the threshing floor was a, was a cleared area where grain was crushed. It was torn. It was somehow processed to separate the chaff and the straw from the grain. The harvest then would be winnowed. They'd basically uh, throw it up in the air, and the, the wind would blow away the chaff, and the grains would fall directly to the ground. And this would take place during the spring when the harvest period was occurring, and especially during the harvest festivals. Now, just by reading the chapter, the author somewhat carefully and artistically kind of creates an air of mystery, you know, why did she do that? Why did he do that? Why did, why did this happen? Well, the, the secrecy of Ruth's mission, the privacy at the end of the grain pile, the darkness of midnight and early dawn, which this encounter takes place, the danger of being discovered, the ambiguity, if you will, of Ruth's actions, this kind of contributes to this aura of suspense and and anticipation. So Naomi encouraged Ruth to look her best and to secretly observe Boaz's actions. And at the desired moment when he was comfortably asleep, she was to uncover his feet and lie down. Now, the full significance of this is not known. We don't really know exactly why 
this was done. There are many commentators, many, uh, many commentators offer explanations. There are only a few that are plausible. Some believe that she exposed the feet of Boaz to the cold so he would wake up. That was done to awaken him. Others believe that her position at his feet was one of humility in preparation to present her petition. Others believe that she was not to lay down by his side, for that would be viewed as immodest. But at his feet, that would be the posture of a humble petitioner. And if you think about it, if, if Ruth had acted in any other respect other than what was judged to be decent, if she had acted indecently or immodest, it's most likely that she would have highly displeased an honorable person like Boaz, who he appeared to be. And in our thinking, and in today's thinking, what she did almost seems to be indecent and would certainly be improper conduct in many minds. But the general character of Naomi and Ruth prevents us from assuming they had anything other than good intentions. There were certainly no sinful intentions. In fact, the Bible tells us in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 that King David, when he uh, was very old, he had trouble keeping warm. In 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, Let's look for a young woman to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie down beside him so our lord the king may keep warm. But there was never any sinful or untoward intent. Ruth, Ruth's uh, request was an honorable one. And it doesn't constitute anything of an illicit nature. She had placed herself in a somewhat dangerous, compromising situation. From the beginning of the gleaning in the field to where she is now, she was in an uncomfortable, compromising situation. And if you think about it from those standpoint, then from that standpoint, then impropriety is possible and perhaps even imminent. But the narrative, this story moves then to a resolution. In this midnight visit, Ruth carries out and expands Naomi's plan, and she puts her own reputation and her own expectations at risk. And she claims Boaz's protection as a redeemer. It's best to admit that we don't know the full implications of what Ruth did in her actions. They reflect an ancient custom that's now lost to us. But what is clear is that Boaz understood Ruth to be proposing marriage to him as his function as a kinsman redeemer. This was a proposal. This was a proposal of marriage, and it's actually indicated and referred to in Ezekiel. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, that was the method of proposing this marriage. This still exists, this custom still exists among some modern Arabs. This symbolic language seems to even have a word play here because if you go back uh, in uh, 
verse uh, 12 of, chap- of chapter 2, uh, when Boaz said, uh, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Well, Ruth found security under the wings of the God of Israel. But she's also requesting security under the wings of Boaz. Her trust in his character is vindicated. Her trust in his uh, Uh, doing the right thing is vindicated because she's unharmed. And God's activity behind the scenes, God's activity, His involvement in this whole situation continues without a break. But at this very moment, when you think, okay, things are in line, everything's falling into place, a complication arises. There's a closer relative as it turns out. And Boaz, a man of upstanding character, of outstanding honor, he will not rest until this obstacle has been removed. So then the suspense and the ambiguity continues for a bit, yet this is about to be resolved. Boaz behaves nobly, but he also behaves in a way that would bring glory and honor, not only to God, but to the customs and the way they lived and to the law. So he's genuinely honored, and he's surprised by Ruth's request, and a little bit surprised that she would request him rather than a younger man. And he states that this kindness, as some versions, some translations may even say loyalty, is greater than her early, earlier expression. He's presumably referring to the faithfulness of Naomi, his, her faithfulness to Naomi, he'd referred to earlier, but he's saying now this loyalty, this kindness that you're showing me is even, uh, even a greater expression of your faithfulness. The implication is that Ruth is giving higher priority to family obligations than her own personal well-being. The reader is given assurance, then, that this will have a happy ending. He says, I will do for all, I will do for you all you ask. And he assures her that over the last two months, it had become obvious to everyone in Bethlehem that she had done the right thing. She had stood behind Naomi. She had conducted herself with faithfulness and dignity and faith and honor. And he assured her that that made her a very attractive person for marriage. But this twist comes into the story, this this, uh, surprising twist. Ruth is informed that there is a closer relative. There's a man who is closer relative, and he has the first chance to redeem the property and to redeem Ruth in the process. This is apparently news to Ruth. Although Naomi probably had known that. If she knew that Boaz was a close relative, she probably knew that there was a closer relative that could redeem the property. We don't know why Naomi would have been silent about that. 
The reasons are unknown. Probably doesn't matter. It was clear that she favored Boaz as the prospective husband for Ruth. Boaz apparently uh, didn't consider Mary and Ruth until the first preference would have been given to the closer relative. Even though he held the advantage, he had basically all the power. He had Ruth and Naomi to use our phrase, where he wanted them, but he wouldn't do that to avoid any appearance of impropriety. He says, I will, I will uh, get this taken care of, but I can't redeem you first because there's someone who's closer relative than me. And then to avoid any appearance of impropriety, he advises Ruth to leave, to leave, to remain, to leave so she remain undetected. And he sends her back to Naomi with a very generous portion of grain. Again, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, they've all acted very admirably. And admittedly, these were very delicate circumstances. So, is this coincidence or was this providence? We think about it, they returned during the barley harvest. And there was a farmer who had barley being harvested named Boaz. Ruth, as it turned out, as the Bible records, just happened to choose the field belonging to Boaz to work in. The first in line, unfortunately, can't redeem. But as we'll see uh, next week, that's taken care of because he can't redeem it because it would mess up his estate. So even though Boaz is not first in line to redeem, that um, impediment has been removed. And look at Boaz. He was kind to her, which was not very common. She showed up in his field just reading between the lines that she may have been gleaning in places she wasn't supposed to glean. He told the harvesters, if she uh, gleans from the stalks, do not, uh, you know, do not chastise her, let her go. He was very, uh, he was very uh, nice to her. He was very protective of her. He gave her uh, water. He gave her protection, invited her to eat with him during mealtime. He gave her preferential harvesting, um, he allowed her on the threshing floor and accepted her proposal as long as this closer relative didn't redeem the property and redeem her first. But you could tell in Naomi's mind that he wanted to get this resolved as quickly as possible. In fact, Naomi said, wait, my, on, in verse, uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, Wait, my daughter, you will find out what happens, for this man will not rest until this matter is settled today. You know, next week we'll conclude this study, and we'll look in depth at the fourth chapter of Ruth, and we'll see the ultimate divine purposes behind Ruth's original decision to follow Naomi to not go back to Moab, but follow Naomi back to Bethlehem to choose to work in Boaz's field. 
and the necessary arrangements that are set in place, combining this heirship marriage to the redeeming property, Ruth will be taken as his wife, and the ancient blessings and fruitfulness are invoked. Naomi's bitterness will turn to joy, and her grandson will become the grandfather of King David. And in these events, the Lord's seemingly hidden providence will be revealed. If you think about it, the marriage union of a Jew, Boaz, and a Gentile, Ruth, resulted in a lineage that produced the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. It was the death of the Messiah, Jesus, and the blood that he shed on the cross that resulted in the union of Jew and Gentile through his blood, reconciled to God through the death of the Messiah. So the union of the Jew and the Gentile through the cross began with the union of the Jew and the Gentile through this marriage. Next week we'll finish up this study And we'll see in uh, chapter 4 how God is willing to use anybody when you're in the right place at the right time. The right place at the right time is when God places you there and when God uses you. As we stand and we sing this song, uh, the Lord's Supper has been left prepared in room 100. If you need to partake of it or if we can help you in any way, you can let us know as well. Let us stand.